Hi everyone, my name is Carolina De Pasquale. I'm an assistant researcher at Bianchi's lab in Trinity College, Dublin, and I will be your host for this podcast with IFA. April is Autism Acceptance Month, and to celebrate, we're going to talk to a representative of SIM, Ireland's national autism charity. Autism is a complex, invisible neurodevelopmental condition that affects the way a person communicates, interacts and understands other people in the world in a variety of ways. No two people on the spectrum are affected in exactly the same way. Self-advocacy is key to develop policies and research that focuses on the needs of the individuals affected by a condition. And the autistic community has been working relentlessly to ensure that autistic people enjoy equal access, rights and opportunities. With one in 54 children having an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, it is more important than ever to amplify autistic voices and make sure that all are heard so that interventions and accommodations can be made in a timely manner to ensure high living standards to each individual. Ifa is gonna give you an overview on the science of autism. Thanks, Carol. So hello, my name is Aoife Torrington and I am a postdoctoral researcher in the Bianchi Lab in Trinity College, Dublin. As Carol has already said, autism is a complex neurodevelopmental disorder, which is characterized by two core symptoms, deficits in social interaction and communication and repetitive and restrictive behaviors and interests. These symptoms must be present in early development, but may not manifest fully until later years. The prevalence of autism has risen dramatically over the last several years and is now estimated at 1 in 54 children. It is four times more prevalent in males than females, although some recent studies indicate this figure may be closer to three times as females are often underdiagnosed. Autism is highly heterogeneous and the neurobiology underlying this disorder is not fully understood. However, a number of genes and environmental factors have been implicated. Twin studies have shown that when one identical or monozygotic twin has autism, there's approximately an 80% chance of the other twin having autism too. This chance reduces to about 40% with dizygotic twins, indicating both genetics and the environment has a role to play. The lack of knowledge surrounding the underlying neurobiology makes it difficult to identify biomarkers and therapies. And there are currently no pharmacological therapies to treat the core symptoms with uh, treatment solely reliant on behavioral intervention. Thank you, Aoife, for that. And here with us today is Ian Linham for as I, from As I Am. I hope I said that right. It's Linham. <laughs> Linham, okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> to talk about the issues faced by the autistic community in Ireland and, of course, your own personal experience as an autistic individual. So, hi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, can you tell us, uh, in your experience, what is it like to live with autism? So, um, I preempt that by saying... Um, it's difficult to speak for what it is like to be autistic as it's the only life experience and perception of the world I've ever known. Um, what I can say is from observing and contrasting my experience of the world with others, um, my um, barriers that I've experienced in the world would be largely sensory in nature. Um, 
Uh, I was I was thinking about this recently. Actually, there was I was looking at some old photos of me from when I was in school, and I remember I had this. Um, there's this perception that when I was having school photos taken and whatnot, that I was always kind of uh, making a face or looking upset. And <clears throat> it was only when I uh, grew up older that I realized that um, I was actually squinting in all of those pictures because the the sunlight in my eyes was too strong. Um, and I can. Uh, e even today, sometimes there are days where, where I, especially when we've had a, a few very nice days of sun here um, at this time of the year in, in Dublin, uh, I remember thinking that I was about to have an anxiety attack because I felt all this um, stress building up. And then I realized that I'd forgotten to put on my sunglasses. So it's even little things like that still pop up. Um, my other, um, I suppose, difficulties that I would have ran into, especially in early years and in, in, in childhood would have been, um, you know, the very standard uh, avoidance of eye contact. Um, and most, as we as we now know, as most um, experts will will tell you, there's nothing related to, uh, I suppose, um, poor social skills implicated in 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 the lack of of eye contact. In most cases, an autistic person will find the the task of making maintaining eye contact during a conversation quite um, overwhelming. So especially for like a, to, to give a real life example, a job interview, an autistic person might avert their eyes while listening to a question so they can really make sure they're understanding it. But that in a job interview scenario, that would be mistaken if that was a neurotypical person for, you know, lack of trustworthiness. But um, to pivot, pivot back to um, myself, I think uh, that and um very standard uh, dif uh, differences in socialization. Um, I would um, have a difficulty with the back and forth and the reciprocity of, of standard conversations and social interactions. Um, I went into theory of mind training as a result, which I don't think is, is, is a standard uh, intervention as much now because it was based more on the... Um, uh, a kind of older model of, of, I suppose, empathy in autistic people. We now have the uh, the double em empathy problem, which I can go into in more detail later. But that um, uh, I was given interventions on the assumption of deficit in in communication and social interaction. And you mentioned uh, you've been given interventions. So were you diagnosed as a child? Yes, I was diagnosed as a child, and. Um, I was diagnosed at the age of nine in about 2002, and I was given the diagnostic label of Asperger's syndrome, which was commonplace at the time under the DSM-4, I believe. And uh, so obviously it wasn't your decision to pursue a diagnosis. Uh, do you know why and how your parents uh, pursued a diagnosis? Yeah, um, there was... Um, there was a few things they noticed that I didn't really use toys a lot um, and that um, that I'd be I commonly use like household objects like spoons and whatnot instead and I, I kind of be fixated with those um, but I remember interestingly um, it, it kind of goes into the early years and education end of things because firstly I was 
I was kind of held back a year from entering school um, uh, because I, I think there was actually I um, I was suspended from crash for a while when I when I was a toddler um, uh, because I think I bit a kid I can't remember it but uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not not to set up any stereotypes there about um, aggression but um, I, I mentioned that because early years practitioners, um, people working in creches and, and early childcare, they are the most likely other than parents to spot the early signs and to uh, notice something is up. In fact, they sometimes might be more likely than the parent to notice this because obviously when you're a parent, there's a, there's a level of um, you know, personal investment and you might not notice certain things. Um, but in, the, in my case, it was a combination of that and my uncle uh, my mother's sister is a um, he's a teacher and he uh, he noticed that I was very startled around dogs and mainly for sensory reasons. And him observing that was what actually made him say to my mother, I think you need to get Ian tested. And Ian, what is the procedure like then to get a diagnosis? What did your mom, is it go visit your GP? Um, yeah, I visited GP. I was referred on to a private psychiatrist, which is um, the case for um, the majority of people, unfortunately, that, that I've spoken of, spoken to because there is, you know, you, you, today there's an enormous waiting list to get an assessment. I can't, I can't really even imagine what it was like back in the 90s. But um, as I remember, there was a... I was just brought into the psychiatrist's office, conversed with him for about 10 to 20 minutes. And then he made his, his referral based on that. Um, or sorry, he made his assessment based on that. Um, I can't really speak for what the process was like because I was so young, but I will say on a, on a, on a tangentially related note, I recently got diagnosis of ADHD and that was pursued obviously uh, as an adult and through his private services. So I got a little bit more of a flavor for what that kind of thing is like. And um, while this isn't based on on my experience with, with autism diagnoses, I will say um, it's especially common. And it kind of leads into what you were saying there, Aoife, about women um, and, and this perception that it's more common um, in boys. Um, uh, there, there'd be two points to that. Uh, for, for firstly, the, the use of, of boys. Uh, I, I, I get what you're saying there. That's obviously diagnosed primarily in um, a childhood context, but I find that so many women that come to us um, got the diagnosis in adulthood. And I sometimes wonder if that throws off the numbers we have, because a lot of the numbers about, um, you know, the one in 59 figures, like a lot of those are based on childhood diagnosis. Since most women will get diagnosed in adulthood, usually privately, they might not even, you know, um, disclose the autism diagnosis. So we don't, I, I feel like there's part of the picture that isn't being fully seen there. And that might even, you know, bump the numbers up in terms of women. But Def I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, because a lot, I know this um, Center for Disease Control in America, they base it off eight-year-olds, which yes. is obviously children. So females tend to be later in life. Yeah, um, significantly. And one one thing I have noticed, um, particularly with women, but I, I would say this applies to men as well, is um, most women who get an, a, a, an adult 
uh, autism diagnosis, many of them will have had at least one visit to a psychiatric unit. Um, Sometimes it's for eating disorders, sometimes it's for um, OCD. Many of them will have probably possibly been given a diagnosis of um, bipolar or borderline personality disorder. And, 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 you know, it is very possible to have those things alongside autism. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot lot of them will have like gone through a rigmarole of every other possible mental health um, possibility before arriving on the idea of it being a neurodevelopmental condition. Um, So, and I can, say for my 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 experience of getting an ADHD diagnosis and there was enormous an enormous list that I had to go through that basically just eliminated every other possibility than ADHD so I would say it's um similar for autism yeah we actually had um a representative from Bodywise on the podcast a few weeks ago and he had said that um eating disorders was commonplace with an autism diagnosis. So that's interesting to hear from your point of view as well. Ian. Yeah, and there, there's there's actually an excellent um, study that we, we we interviewed the the writers of it. It's um, Fiona Bullivant and um, I'm going to say Sharon something. It's on our site anyway, but, but we did do something about um, specifically autism and eating disorders and that and unfortunately sometimes um eating disorders might not be picked up or or even treated as, as effectively in autism people because the um the thinking behind the eating disorder can quite often be different in an autistic person than it is with, with a neurotypical um and, and the ways that the behavior manifests and then sometimes if the the the, the person in question hasn't got a diagnosis the interventions might not work because they're based on a different model of thinking and then the then it leads to a very difficult situation where they'll sometimes think that the family isn't as committed to the recovery process because the uh, interventions aren't currently working um and i think that leads into a an interesting issue which is because of autism's, I suppose, diagnostic history, it, it is is fundamentally inaccurately, but fundamentally tied to the idea of mental disorder or psychiatric disorder. Um, I think Leo Connor originally labeled it as like a derivative of schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, it was, I, I think, treated as this imbalance that could be balanced, which, which we now know isn't really the, the case. But I think there's there's a there's a difficult situation now where we've almost overcorrected on that, where we don't want to associate it with mental disorders, and then sometimes co-occurring mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, which are incredibly common in the autistic community, might not get picked up as readily. And and there is, um, e- even when they are picked up, we have the issue of are the th- are the current therapies is CBT you know effective is it geared towards the autistic thinking process and I, I think that's something that needs to be considered more moving forward is how to tailor existing mental health supports towards autistic and neurodivergent people yeah that's a really good point and um ian what would you say is the most common misconception associated with autism it's difficult to 
narrow it down to one um, that it's something I mean the most common I think of that it's restricted childhood not the case autistic children become autistic adults um, that as you said it, um, that, it's, um, that it's a specifically male condition not the case um, a big one is if someone says autism is caused by and it, it you know it's followed by something it's what follows is probably not true um because there's such a variety of factors as you mentioned there both the environmental and genetic um um I, I think the the original psychiatric explanation very much placed um the idea of parenting first and foremost i think connor pushed forward the idea of the refrigerator parent and the idea that like unloving uh, mothers was, was the cause. Um, uh, very much not the case. I don't want to hold that too much against uh, Dr. Connor. Obviously he was a Freudian. That was the language at the time. But I think <laughs> I'm going to give a very autistic analogy for this. Um, I'm a big fan of the Star Wars movies. Right. Um, I loved Star Wars Episode Eight. A lot of people didn't. Um, a lot of people were like, "Why? Where does this alien guy come from? Why? What's his relevance to the story?" I was more interested in, "Oh, okay, they've gotten rid of him now. They're going to move forward with new storytelling opportunities." I really don't care about the origin of this guy. What's What's moving forward with the franchise is important. That's That's quite often how I feel about people who are looking for the cause of autism because. When I read these journals, there seems to be hundreds of possible uh, gene clusters that are coming every week. Um, and it just seems like either, either it's going to take quite a few years or I, I just feel like it's going to be too heterogeneous an explanation to actually do any tangible, current, present good to the community. Yeah, makes um, sense. Now, pivoting on to cures, that, that is another one, is that autism is cured by that. That is a thing that comes up. Um, obviously there are interventions to um, empower um, the autistic individual. Um, I would say to the, the primary goal of an intervention should be to enable an autistic person to uh, firstly communicate to the best of their um, ability uh, and how they can self-advocate based on that communication and to learn to self-regulate in their sensory environment. So occupational therapy and speech and language therapy should be um, first and foremost in that regard when it comes to um, therapeutic supports, but of course they're not cures. Anything related to cures, be extremely skeptical, um, especially anything coming from a, a biomedical point of view like um, MMS, um, oxygenation um in extreme circumstances i think um i think um stem cells have been suggested but like anything that medicalizes it is, is I, I would consider quite suspect yeah there's a lot of research out there all looking for um therapeutics as you say in but until there's a lot of work still to be done when the neurobiology is unknown um, and as you said, I think it's more important to 
learn how to advocate and communicate and just for uh, people that might not know what it is can you just give a very very short explanation of what mms and oxygenations are because i actually i've heard about it it's horrific but not everybody knows okay so um firstly there's mms which is a miraculous mineral solution i think is the term um it is bleach um with a little bit of kool-aid in it basically to disguise it as a you know healthy tonic drink it's a toxic substance um it has been distributed widely in other countries it's it is associated primarily with america but i think that's a bit of an unfair assessment because there was a case i believe of a gp in belfast that had actually diagnosed it um there are cases one or two, I think, one in Cork, where someone had been medicating their child with MMS, they'd, um, they'd found it on Facebook, actually, through a private Facebook group. And that, that's the online space has, you know, opened up information resources to a huge degree in, in a good way. There's a lot of online information resources that are accurate and up-to-date for autism but there are also um you know i suppose the dark web you'd call it that um provides not particularly helpful approaches as well as mms we have um chelation um which is a treatment for heavy metal poisoning um i think it was i think it was developed just after the First World War. Anyway, it's it's based on the idea. I think I've, a chemist would uh, explain this better, but um, the idea is that when the, the body is oversaturated with heavy metals, such as in mustard gas, as it was in the First World War, the treatment allows the offending material to kind of be scraped out of the bloodstream and then passed out through urine. Um, chelation is prescribed more in the states luckily it doesn't seem to have happened too much in ireland but um, it's basically linked to anti-vaxxer sentiment the idea is that the child has heavy metal poisoning from mercury from the vaccine and that chelation can dispel the offending material um which is highly dubious to say the least and also that should be mentioned those treatments are actually highly dangerous and painful for the children most of the time that uh, should be avoided at all costs potentially fatal, potentially um, permanently um, uh, impairing the child. I think kidney damage is a very real danger of chelation. Um, if anybody is interested in hearing a more, um, I suppose, measured uh, account of, of these these treatments, Steve Silberman's NeuroTribes goes into great detail about um, a number of practitioners that did this. And yeah, ultimately, it just, the numbers just never add up with these kind of treatment. Even if you take the claims they're making at face value, there's yeah. it's very contradictory. Yeah, thank you. And obviously, um, that kind of leads us to the next question I was going to ask, because the, this desperation for parents to cure autism, uh, it's also largely dependent on the fact that there's a lot of stigma attached to an autism diagnosis. Do you, do you see that in your daily life? Does your association see it? Um, yeah, there is certainly a stigma attached 
to it. I think certainly the stigma is is founded in not a lot of a, a awareness on the subject. Um, I've heard some quite. I mean, it was more 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 in childhood. I didn't really disclose a lot at school, but when people kind of found out between the lines, there was an assumption that it was either an intellectual disability of some form or something kind of akin to sociopathy. And those are very two very distinct, different conditions. And I don't want to stigmatize those groups either personally, but um, there was a very inconsistent definition of it in these in these people's heads i find that um i i think sometimes for in 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 popular consciousness autism is almost like a like a ontological mirror that when people look into it their um, their own perception of it is reflected back to them it's very rarely based in what con autism concretely is and it, I mean, it, that's understandable. Autism is a very heterogeneous condition, so it can vary massively. But these core ideas relating to kind of like difficulties in empathy or um, um, status as an intellectual disability, of course, autism isn't an intellectual disability, but it can be co-occurring with an intellectual disability. The, the interesting thing actually is the most impactful statements that I remember in childhood from both uh, classmates and from teachers were like, if they were delivered in a different context would actually be quite inoffensive. My, my, my a teacher told my mother when I was in fourth class in a parent-teacher meeting that your son would be lucky to be stacking shelves in Tesco. Now, interestingly, not entirely incorrect um, because autism huge unemployment rates in our community 80% of us are either unemployed or underemployed um for a lot of people actually you know a job at Tesco that provides a lot of routine a lot of consistency and actually could be the end goal um but the, the context in which he was delivering that statement I really think he meant it in a disparaging way even though it shouldn't be and similarly when I uh, left my primary school um uh, I went to a Christian Brothers school. I ended up going to John Scottis and, and, and Donnybrook because it has quite good resource teachers. Uh, after I left, some students had said that I'd gone to a, um, uh, like a special school for students with intellectual disabilities. Now, again, I technically left school <laughs> to go to a place that had better supports and better resources um, for students with additional educational needs. But again, I don't think these students were saying that in a, you know, charitable way. Um, so I think the misunderstanding that was around in the early 2000s when I was in school was of a very different kind. It was based on more um, perceptions of lack of empathy and um, judgment calls about intellect. I think now the stigma that keeps people from disclosing is I think there's much more of a perception on autism with relation to behavioral issues, um, uh, which again kind of goes into the uh, uh, misunderstanding of 
how autistic people socialize and social reciprocity. Um, And I think the, I think based on the idea of savantism, which was really pushed during the seventies and eighties, there is this, I think, unfortunate position that autistic people find themselves in where people assume that they're only very accomplished in one field uh, in keeping with the savant stereotype that they'd be only very good at mathematics, chemistry or whatnot. Whereas in reality, autistic people can have, you know, fields of special interests that they um, may choose to pursue um, as a line of work, or they may, you know, have entirely separate interests to what they pursue professionally. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, do you think that's changing the perception? And do you think that because um, you mentioned the language that was used to describe you uh, by teachers and by schoolmates. Do you think the, perce- the language, how the language is used, does it shape the perception of autism? Uh, somewhat, yeah. I think uh, Stuart Nielsen's a very good person to go to on this. Uh, Dr. Stuart Nielsen, um, I can send the appropriate link on but he did he did cover like the the differences of how autism is described in each of the provinces in Ireland and how it related to um you know the the kind of way that autistic people are perceived so like he said like within the north it was kind of in, in step with NHS stuff in the in the you know Leinster region it was more kind of keeping with uh, supports and educational supports and the like and then when you went west it was more about getting the diagnosis in the first place um there is a lot of contention around the use of uh, identity first or person first language so should you call someone someone with autism or an autistic person now um i would and my workplace as i am would support identity first language as in autistic because our belief is that you shouldn't really separate autism from the person because it is a you know very fundamental part of who we are uh, having said that i understand a lot of people will use person first language to refer to themselves and i wouldn't really police the way another autistic person or person with autism in their case self-identifies um i think there's other terms with relation to, I suppose, uh, di- disorder, still quite a hot button uh, issue for a community. Like a, 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 there's more of a pivot now for condition being used for autism uh, as opposed to disorder. Like interestingly, in my case, I wouldn't, I, I do object to the term disorder, but I really wouldn't object to the term disability because, um, you know, it, I suppose if you're taking the social model and the the environment is disabling, it still manifests as a disability and should be treated as such, um, you know, and should be supported as such. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm learning a lot here, Ian. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, and I was going to ask you a bit more about your work with As I Am and if you could tell us a bit about it. Yeah, certainly. So As I Am started in 2012 uh, as a blog by Adam Harris. He um, gradually built that into a, um, a, I suppose, a training service where he delivered talks to schools and, and it's expanded since then massively. Um, 
and I, when, when we speak about, I suppose, how things are changing for the better, I say that, you know, with relation to, you know, we, we provide advocacy. So, you know, we were quite active on, on the, the schools, uh, the reopening of special schools and classes for children with uh, additional needs during the COVID pandemic and schooling and education has always been quite central to our advocacy, our school training workshops are our oldest um, program. But additionally, we have our, um, I suppose, our you know, up-to-date information guidelines that we, we distribute to various businesses. Like we've got a very close um, relationship with our corporate partner, SuperValue, um, through which autism-friendly shopping was rolled out for the first time. And furthermore, you know, documents informing staff about you know autism friendly guidelines and, and like that's that's only rolled out since we're um working to make businesses um both public and private autism friendly public facing um and i think it isn't it we, I, I suppose sometimes it isn't isn't brought up as much that when we are making businesses autism friendly it's to make make it friendly for the you know if it's public facing for the the visitors or the 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 clients that are coming in uh, such as you know our autism friendly in trio centers but we're also aiming to make it autism friendly for employees because as i said 80 percent under unemployed that's a figure we're working on um in, we're working on that with our autism friendly um kind of training for businesses but also through our partnership with specialist earn which is you know an, an international company has a branch in, in Ireland, but the the goal of the founder was to create one million jobs for autistic people. Um, I don't, but but having said all of that, with our with our training programs, with our advocacy programs, I don't want to solely say um, things have got better because of as I am's work. I think it's gotten better because there's a, there's a, just this demand in the population uh, an appetite for autism friendly services that wasn't before i mean it's it's not just us providing it it's the people demanding it more and more people seem to be becoming cognizant of just how prevalent autism is and how the best way forward is to create an autism friendly um you know society and and to not to put too fine a point on it but um when we were discussing our, um, our autism friendly measures for a certain, I can't even remember what place it was, but we were talking about the sensory guidelines and how you could um, adjust them to make it more accessible for an autistic person. Uh, the, the business in question actually said that um, these were the same demands and the same accommodations that Alzheimer's Ireland had demanded. So, you know, in many cases, making something autism friendly can actually widen it out for many other groups of people. And, you know, I think there's, there's, there's even cases where autism friendly practice kind of, it improves it for, for everyone. Uh, you know, even if we take ability, um, you know, neurodiversity out of the equation and just, you know, the human race, um, I was reading a really interesting op-ed about Dr. Magda Mustafa, who's worked with, with As I Am before she invented the, the practice of autism-friendly architecture, or, or I said developed it, but it really didn't exist as a, as a methodology before her. And it's a really incredible, 
a concept of kind of building the sensory friendly environment from the ground up in terms of acoustics and in terms of lighting. But she is currently working on a focus group in New York with relation to developing architecture in line with um, future pandemics and COVID-19. And there was this realization during the, the talks that apparently um, autism friendly architecture that st stresses kind of open spaces and ventilation is actually COVID friendly as well. So I think there's some really positive developments in terms of people who have a personal investment in the world of autism. So autistic people, um, parents of autistic children or autistic parents of aut autistic children feel the benefit of um, autism friendly practice. But, um, you know, the businesses who hire, the doctors who treat, the teachers who teach, all of them are coming to realize the benefits um, of autism friendly practice. And that's without, without even getting into our autism university, uh, friendly university program which is, is being rolled out on a much more um, wide-ranging basis, starting with DCU as, I believe, the world's first autism-friendly university in 2018. Um, that all sounds amazing. Like, you are doing really great work. And um, April is Autism Acceptance Month. Um, do, I know, obviously, with COVID, can't organise... Um, offense in person but is there any you'd like to kind of highlight here or yeah so our big drive for april is say yes to autism acceptance um we had i think 280 percent increase in queries to our services in march of last year as a result of covid 19 and we're we're kind of emphasizing we're emphasizing the, the, the barriers that presented themselves during COVID and the realization of just how much support our, our community needed. But we're also now looking into the potential of online learning to you know, further assist the autistic community in, in empowering themselves. So saying yes to autism acceptance entails, um, we have 10 simple rules that can be found on our website or um, 10 autism friendly guidelines of how to become autism friendly. And the idea is say yes, no matter what position you're in. As, as I was saying there, teachers who teach, doctors who treat, um, you know, say yes where you can. You can say yes to your family. You can say yes to your students. You can say yes to your, you know, coworkers. And um, my, my, my favorite actually example of autism friendly practice and how small changes can grow into huge changes is our work with Super Value. We initially started with autism friendly shopping hours, which was so simple to do. It's one hour of the week initially, and then I think it was rolled out daily, dim the lights, switch off the music. Suddenly shopping becomes a much more manageable experience for autistic people and their families. And then that gradually became um, the autism friendly town program. So we had Clonakilty, um, where Clonakilty was the first autism friendly super value. Clonakilty, uh, the kind of community became involved where various shops uh, took up the idea of sensory friendly shopping, um, a more tolerant attitude towards service dogs uh, with, with, in line with um, the needs of an autism assistance dog. 
And that grew into, you know, Ireland's first autism friendly town. And now that's being rolled out on a, on a nationwide scale. I believe we have 11 planned towns to participate in that. So th that's entire communities now that are becoming more inclusive. And that all started just because of an hour of switching the light down and turning the music off. So I think it very much obviously depends on the level of, of funding you might have on the level of resources you might have but you, it, it's just important to think that there are such there are really small ways that you can make things like, so much easier for the autistic community um <clears throat> what do you know about ongoing research in the field is there anything that is particularly exciting do you think yes i've got a um, yeah, thank you for asking. I've got. A, um, I, I was checking this up this morning because I'd forgotten there are um, a few points that I'm. Uh, I mean, firstly, I would give a shout out to Damien Milton. He was the one who um, coined the the kind of double empathy problem. He's he's been around for a while, but um, Milton put it, I think, better than any any autistic person had put it before. Um, in, 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 in research terms, he, he basically posited the concept that people are more likely to empathize with people that have similar experiences to them. So a neurotypical person is more likely to empathize with a neurotypical person because they understand their experience and likewise with an autistic person. So he posited that rather than autistic people being, you know, unempathetic, they, there was this realization that the different ways that we communicate means that life experience barrier autistic person might find it hard to kind of understand where a neurotypical person is coming from. But he pointed out interestingly that because of this uh, perception that we've had for years of autistic people having underdeveloped or no empathy at all, that autistic and I suppose by extension neurodiverse people end up doing a lot of the legwork when in reality empathy is a dialogic process there's two parties in it it should be coming from both sides to meet in the middle so double empathy kind of just stresses that there there needs to be more effort on both sides to communicate in ways beneficial to each other um, and that people who are not autistic should maybe realize am i making this clear enough to an autistic person when they're communicating with them um, but into you know, approaches moving forward. Um, Matron Lai is doing a lot on gender diversity and how uh, it kind of manifests in, I suppose, demographics that you wouldn't consider uh, as the stereotype for autism. So I think she's going into not just um, women getting diagnosed, but um, transgender and gender non-conforming um, people. Elizabeth Ware, or Elizabeth Vare, I'm not sure of how it's pronounced, but she's doing um, stuff on health issues, specifically reproductive health and sexual health, which I'm very glad someone's covering that because um, sexuality and sexual orientations is kind of under considered, but there's a huge demographic of LGBT um, people in our community. Uh, Sarah Cassidy and Jackie Rogers are both working on kind of tailored approaches to mental health. I believe, yeah, Cassidy and Rogers are both kind of working on how we can build up new mental health approaches from the ground up, specifically for autistic people. And finally, Autistica, a huge resource that we've 
availed of in the past. We've got a good relationship with um, Dr. Kat Hughes, actually, who is the communications manager for Autistica. She was one of the big movers behind the original uh, Autism Friendly University with DCU, but they um, very autistic led research, a lot of autistic researchers involved in finding very uh, kind of answers to what, what I suppose most of us would call niche problems, but what are, you know, make a world of difference in the autistic community, such as like, I think mental, mental health difficulties in um, uh, non-speaking non autistic people was one of them, uh, mental health approaches in autistic people with intellectual disabilities. So really just getting into the nitty gritty of our community. Thank you. And uh, we will share the links maybe in the bio of this podcast for all the important things that you mentioned. And on that note, what is what do you think is the most important thing uh, to the community in terms of policy? Uh, because you mentioned, we mentioned diagnostics, we mentioned uh, changing perceptions, occupation, mental health. So there's, there's quite a lot of things that are important. Um, what do you yeah, think and it, I th focus I, you, on? Sorry, you know, you've, you've really hit on something there. It is really hol a holistic approach is needed. Um, and that that's why, like, As I Am has been very strong on the concept of a national autism strategy, as we've seen being rolled out in some, um, some of the Nordic countries, I believe. But um, autism, an autism, uh, national autism strategy entails kind of like the, the like, I, I, su I suppose what you'd call pain points. So the you know, um, diagnosis, school place, school supports, um, you know, graduation, leaving school, further training, whatever that may, may, may whatever, whatever form that may take, university or PLC, employment, healthcare, there, there's so many kind of points that need to be um, considered in the autistic life cycle that might not seem as obvious, but, um, on a very basic level, if we can't get a, a national strategy anytime soon, you know, there's, I think on average, three years waiting list for a public autism diagnosis, five years waiting list in some cases for school places. Um, I think there needs to be you know, consider widening in 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 the, in the places of diagnosis and school places before we even consider um, the larger issues that may come in the future. Yeah, and are there um, any supports you receive from the government in terms of those um, issues, education or health? Yeah, so I, um, well, certainly when I was a child, availed of uh, dis domiciliary care allowance um, from, from my mother's point of view. Um, I availed of July provision, especially actually during the junior certain leaving cert, because I needed quite a lot of tutelage um, to, to get through those milestones exam wise. Uh, I availed of disability allowance from when I was 16 until just after college, I believe, actually, just when I started working as a TEFL teacher. So I'm not currently availing of any supports, but the, the, the difficulty actually is that an autism diagnosis by itself actually doesn't really, doesn't guarantee you to any form of uh, financial um, supports or disability supports. 
as most anyone in uh, assessment of need knows that it, it's based on like the category of need that is um, determined in the child or in the adult. But um, I, I can certainly say um, um, domiciliary, domiciliary care, huge help. I, you know, I'm, I'm a single parent household. Um, so that really helped with relation to, you know, my mother just trying to, to keep things afloat in the, in the, in the family generally on top of, um, the, the difficulties I was experiencing and the support needs I had. Um, I will say education support can't be underrated, but With regards to government support, I think the difficulty is that most, with regards to, you know, under and unemployment, you know, most autistic people want to be working, you know, um, you know, actually, I shouldn't say most. I, I, I say most in terms of um, my social circle. That actually probably represents a very specific um, uh, demographic. I will say a large number of autistic people want to work. Um, and on ad additionally to, I don't want to say instead of, Additionally to um, government, uh, government supports in the term of financial supports, there should be more in terms of um, autism specific hiring practices in keeping with what specialist is encouraging in keeping with what I, as I am, is encouraging. But, you know, the nonprofits shouldn't be taking the fundamental bulk of this task. It does need to be a policy issue in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully that is something we will see um, over the next years, next few years as autism awareness increases. Mm. I think I think I do. Th I, I do think I've got a potential con of it. So, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I, I do. I do think because I nearly fell into that mode of, of thinking for a second. I think there's an unfortunate um, mode of thought that we slip into with regards to, to autism and autism, autism resources, that it has to be either or when, in, you know, as as has been said, the community is so diverse and heterogeneous that like there needs to be a like very multifaceted approach. Sorry, Aoife, go ahead. Yeah, no, and that's just, I was gonna actually ask, and um, you've kind of touched on it though, what is the biggest limitation for autism in Ireland? And is there anything you've heard of in other countries that you think um, autistic people would benefit from here in Ireland? this can be services or yeah um i was very excited about um i think the i'm gonna try the way in in terms of other countries i saw something in australia or i think it might be new zealand the autism resource center but they had a really um interesting idea like i think it's it's just like 15 minutes from Wellington. It's in a very kind of quiet, isolated area. And the idea is it's a center where 
not only the like the diagnostic and therapeutic supports are kind of melded into one in the one building so basically you could potentially in the one day uh, have your child or yourself get the diagnosis and then be referred into another room in this building to discuss supports I think there's a lot of fragmentation when it comes to the relevant sports in an autistic person's lifetime. Um, I would say I would I would take a quite social model view of, of, of biggest barriers to autistic people. I would say in terms of transitions to different life cycles, that is where things get quite difficult just because we benefit from like many people, routine and consistency. Yeah, the, well, Ireland has a comparable population to New Zealand, so there'd be no reason why something like that couldn't be brought here. They're all um, ahead. Of yeah, the curve that's uh, you know again. not the only thing that could be brought in to <laughs> Ireland beneficially. No. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, we could learn a lot from them. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you benefit from routine and having the same type of social support. And I was just wondering, just to close up, uh, how has COVID impacted uh, both your normal routinary care and treatment even, if you receive any from the group? Yeah, um, I, COVID has been, I think a mixed experience for me in the sense that it was very hard in the few, first few months. Um, I, beyond talk therapy, I wasn't really uh, availing of any, any supports, but in terms of the, the sudden grinding um, halt to it, um, I mean, I was actually, uh, <laughs> the really heartbreaking thing is um, I had the ticket um, I was meant to be in New York on the 16th of March this time last year. So it was like just, you know, like th I think three days before this holiday that I've been, you know, planning for months. Um, I don't, I've never been to America, so it was a big deal. I had tickets to Broadway and everything. But um, uh, on top of that, um, you know, all uh, everything that I would have pursued outside of work in terms of hobbies and uh, in terms of other professional kind of development things I was doing that all kind of was blown away but it also pushed me for the for the first time into a position where I was forced to seek ADHD diagnosis because things were getting so difficult in terms of executive dysfunction so I mean I suppose that is in a weird way a positive I was um, made to evaluate and I think that actually is true of a lot of undiagnosed um, you know autistic adults I think a lot of people are now um, seeking out um, clarity on issues like that in lockdown. Thank you. At least maybe some positive is going to come out of this awful year. Uh, Here's hoping, yeah. I, I think this is all from us. So thank you again, Ian, for talking to us about your experience and being so articulate about um, everything that SIM is doing and that uh, you... Uh, experienced and know about the autistic community you actually know so much so that was hugely helpful for us um just a reminder to everyone april is the international month for autism acceptance 
And as we mentioned, it is important to advocate for autistic voices to be heard within the health system and in wider society. So if you uh, have autistic friends or follow autistic self-advocacy pages, share that, amplify their voices um, and listen to what they're saying. A greater understanding means that it will be easier to push for the services that are needed to support individuals and their family rather than what people might think that the autistic person needs without asking them. Uh, in Ireland, as I am, uh, the Irish Society of Aut for Autism and Aspire Ireland are the leading organisations that offer a number of services for those on the spectrum and obviously the HSE. Uh, that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you, Aoife.